the Old Testament to Isaiah 64, verses 1 through 12. Isaiah 64, verses 1 through 12. This also is God's holy word. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you, who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. And in our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness, Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, where our fathers praised you, has been burned by fire, and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent? And afflict us so terribly. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our sovereign God, we thank you, Father, for you have given us your word. That your word is truth. That your word is clear. That your word is authoritative in our life. That your word is necessary. That your word is sufficient that we do not need anything else by which we have life and godliness. Father, help us to depend upon you, to trust in you. Father, we thank you that you're the one who hears and answers prayer. Father, we pray that you might send a great revival within our hearts, that you might send a great revival within your church, and that having life again, may you send those from outside in, that they might desire Jesus Christ. Father, we acknowledge that you are the one who gives life, you alone. And Father, we thank you that you are one who sends forth the good news of the gospel. And that by the power of your spirit, you transform the hearts and lives of sinners. Father, we thank you that you are the one who gives new life. And Father, we pray that your son, Jesus, would be exalted and that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> busy bodies. Have you ever met one? A busy body. For you, there might be even a name attached to such a busy body. Scriptures indicate that oftentimes they are women, but not always. 
Busybodies are those who are concerned about the doings of others while their own ways are more awry. Perhaps you've noticed in your own life that whenever you have a tendency to laser focus on the sins and failures of others, it is actually an indication that there is something wayward in your own heart. When your focus is on someone else and what they're doing wrong, especially what they're doing wrong to obstruct you, it's because it's a cover-up. It's a defense mechanism for what you're not doing. And this is not limited to women. This is in every heart, every sinful heart, it is present. There is a busy body in every one of us. Here, when we think about busy bodies, it's not only to individuals. Have you ever wondered, is it ever the case that being a busybody applies to the church. That the church is focused on what the world is doing wrong. Hey, look at, look at the bad direction they're headed. But how often do we say, no, wait a minute. Instead of focusing on what the world is doing wrong, we need to think about what the church ought to be doing. And this is often the case. That when we see the need for revival, what we see are the symptoms. The symptoms is that the church has no influence in the world. And it has no influence. That's a symptom of the problem. That's not the problem. The problem is actually because of the church and what she is not doing. And what the, the good that we're supposed to be doing, we're not doing. And the bad that God has commanded us not to do, we're actually doing. So revival, if anything, must begin in the hearts of God's people. It must begin in the church. That is where true revival is. And, and then after that, you see the, the secondary, the tertiary effect is that with new life within the church again, given by the Holy Spirit, then those outside see, wait a minute, there is a difference. The church is different than the world. There's, there's something contrasted. And then they say, wow, there's something that we must listen to that the church has. Here in Isaiah, we have what we call uh, a long prophet. So there are various prophets and we have the major prophets and we have the minor prophets. It is not that the minor prophets are less important or lesser people. It's just that the major prophets happen to write more. That God, by his Holy Spirit, had Isaiah write 66 chapters and Obadiah far fewer. Here, Isaiah was a prophet during the time of Ju uh, prophet to Judah and Jerusalem during the kingly reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. It was during the 700s of the BCs, 700s, so 800, 700, around that period. This is when the Assyrians came to exile the northern tribes. So you think about what happened during uh, the reign of Rehoboam. So Rehoboam was the son of Solomon. And apparently Solomon uh, had a heavy burden on God's people. And uh, the people came to Rehoboam asking that, they, that he might relent. And he spoke to the wrong people. He spoke to his young men advisors, uh, and they gave him bad advice. He said, I will increase whatever burden you're speaking about. So the northern tribes, uh, the ten tribes, they decided, well, we're done. We have no part. And the northern tribes, that they went astray more quickly. It was the Assyrian Empire that God sent to judge them. And then it was the southern kingdom, uh, Judah and, and Benjamin, that 
they went astray a little later. It wasn't until 586 when the Babylonian Empire came to judge them, and that was the 70-year exile. Here, we think about some of the key things that happened during the time of Isaiah. Isaiah was part of the royal family, uh, that he was the one who witnessed. He was the one who had the message, Isaiah 7, about the virgin who would be with child. This is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that a virgin would give birth. Also, we remember how this Assyrian Empire, they also came to attack Judah. And Sennacherib, this man, he was the one who came and threatened. He was the one who mentioned all of these people groups and all of these forgotten gods. And he asked, are these people ever remembered? Are these names of gods ever spoken of again? And his statement was, nor will you be. What he didn't know is that Israel worshiped the true and the living God. And so the prophecy was that just as Sennacherib came, so he will leave. God sent one angel. He killed in one night 185,000 Assyrians. Just imagine what Christ will do when he returns, when he brings however many legions of angels. If one angel can take out 185,000, he probably did it without breaking a sweat. Here we think also of the prophecy of our coming Lord Jesus, Isaiah 53, that the suffering servant would come. You think about the ministry of these prophets. Was it to Isaiah that he said to him that he would proclaim the word to a people who would not hear, to hearts that would not feel? Basically, God was saying, I'm calling you to a ministry that will in every way outwardly look like failure, but you are still to do it. Here we see in Isaiah 64. While God's people lament his dishonor among the nations, in revival, God awakens his church to honor him first. While God's people lament his dishonor among the nations, in revival, God awakens his church to honor him first. <clears throat> we'll look at this in three points. It's arranged in a chiastic structure. First point is, in revival, God leads his people to pray. That's in verses 1 through 3 and 10 through 12. Second, in revival, God renews the devotion of and relationship with his people. Verses 4 to 5 and then 8 through 9. And the third point, in revival, God turns his people in repentance. So the first point, in revival, God leads his people to pray. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence, when you did awesome things that we did not look for. You came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. Also in 10 through 12. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? In verses 1 through 3, there's the recognition 
of the need of the nations, of the Gentile nations. The request, the prayer that the prophet has, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Here, the prophet was asking for some kind of great, powerful, supernatural, cataclysmic event to cause the mountains to quake. You think about the <coughs> account of the sun standing still or the parting of the Red Sea or of the, the earth forming a crack and swallowing up uh, Korah and this rebellion against Moses. The desired effect of this request, this cataclysmic event, or the, the, sorry, the desired object would be to make your name known to your adversaries. Because here, there's the admission, your adversaries don't know your name. Your adversaries don't fear and honor your name. And the desired effect would be that the nations might tremble at God's presence. <coughs> here, we think about the state of the world. The state of the world then, the state of the world now. Is it any different? Understandably, the world then and the, and the world now and society then and now is in a desperate condition. Satan is at work in the sons of disobedience. What did you expect? What, what, what did you expect? The expectation is that, of course, the world will be in a dangerous place. Yet we have God's design for Israel and also now for the church. Isaiah 49, 6, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This involves the church believing Christ who is the light and involves the church living like Christ who is the light. It involves the church proclaiming the light who is Jesus Christ and then discipling others to walk in the light like Jesus Christ. This is what the church is called to do. Here, you think about how Jesus described it in Matthew 5.16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So, it seems as if this request for this cataclysmic event to cause the world to cower and fear God it seems like it's actually an alternate plan. Instead of the church saying, we must do, we must be faithful and diligent to do what God has commanded us to do, they're saying instead, God, send down fire, and you do it. You think back to how James and John got their nickname, Boanerges, or the sons of Boanerges, the sons of thunder. There was a city that did not receive them. And their question to Jesus revealed the content of their hearts. They said to Jesus, shall we call down thunder upon them? It was their rejection. They rejected us. It wasn't so much Jesus, they rejected you. It was God, they rejected us. Shall we call down fire upon them? Perhaps it tells us a little bit about our own hearts also. Here, we think also about the real problem, the root problem 
was the deplorable state of Israel, the deplorable state of Christ's church. We see that in verses 10 through 12. Zion has become a wilderness, Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire. This is uh, a mention of uh, not what has happened, what has already happened, but rather what will happen, because uh, the temple was still there. Writing in uh, Isaiah's time, it wasn't until later that uh, the temple would be destroyed. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. He's saying spiritually, they become ruins. So we see what, what we have is for the busybodies then, that there was a grand irony. Israel desired that the nations would tremble at God's presence, that, that God would send some cataclysmic event, and that the nations then would tremble and fear God. Yet, the irony is that Israel, God's own people, you see their state, were they trembling? Doesn't seem like it. Isaiah 66, 2. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Here, we think about the church today. Do we see her trembling at God's word? Think for a moment in the earlier part of the book of Revelation. The message to the seven churches of Asia. And we ask, well, you think about the writing of the book of Revelation. It's probably written no more than a generation after Christ was crucified, buried, and resurrected. 30 or 40 years, somewhere in that time frame. It was in the lifetime of John, the apostle. <clears throat> So these churches were not even one generation old. And yet you look at the message to these seven churches. I'll summarize it. Being faithful in persecution, that was to Smyrna. <clears throat> Forgetting their first love, that was Ephesus. <clears throat> following the teachings of a false prophetess named Jezebel, that was uh, Thyatira. Committing acts of immorality, birth both Pergamum and Thyatira. And that those who have become wealthy and have completely forgotten God. That was Laodicea. <clears throat> and we see, the summary was that the call, the message to the seven churches, uh, five of them were called to repent. Specifically, repent. For the other two was to persevere or to hold fast. You think about these, the state of those seven churches... How much of those account for the churches in our nation, in our society? I mean, would the majority automatically fall into that category of, of Laodicea, that in wealth, in prosperity, the American church has completely forgotten God and turned away? God, we don't really need to depend on you anymore. We're so wealthy, and we're so full of ourselves. Here, you think not only about the church, but about your own state about your own state? Have you grown adept at your ability to silence the leading of the Holy Spirit? Are you extremely skilled at making excuses for genuine and necessary change in your life? 
Have we become skilled at these things? Are you gifted at pointing a finger at the world and their failures to mask your own? Meaning, are you a skilled, busy body when it comes to the work of, your, of the church? That we point at the world, God, look at their failures, when we're using that to cover for our own. Here, we're reminded that revival is not, a, is not about giving life to the dead. You think about the very term revival, a resuscitation, giving life again. Here, think about the scene from one of my favorite movies of a man who was dead. And he says, hey, this man is mostly dead. If he's all dead, the only thing left is to go through his clothes and look for loose change. But he's only mostly dead. And we think about revival is bringing life to someone who is mostly dead. But there has to be life. There has to be some semblance of life. That revival is bringing life to those who are in a spiritual stupor, a spiritual lethargy. The, the world is not in need of revival. The world is in need of regeneration. The church is in need of revival. We need spiritual vitality. And we realize we cannot pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. It is only the Holy Spirit that would come and breathe life into Christ's church. The picture, the example that we see, that we point to, is Acts chapter 2 of the Pentecost. It wasn't God's, it wasn't man's idea, it wasn't man's power, it was the power of the Holy Spirit. So the purpose and the effect of revival, first and foremost, is God bringing life again to his church, to his people. Think about Psalm 110, verse 3. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. When at one time it was like pulling teeth for God's people to change, when the Holy Spirit is at work, then you and I, will volunteer freely in the day of God's power. So this is the first point. In revival, God leads his people to pray. We see the need. We realize the desperate condition of ourselves and of Christ's church. And the effect is we've seen in the world, the symptom. And so God's people are led to pray by the Holy Spirit. The second point is in revival, God renews the devotion of and relationship with his people. <clears throat> Verses 4 through 5, and then 8 and 9. For of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who, who wait for him. <clears throat> you meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? Verses 8 and 9 also. But now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are our potter, and we are the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. So in verses 4 and 5, <clears throat> this is about devotion to Christ. From of old, no from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you. No eye has seen a God besides you. It sounds a lot like the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. 
But here, this is a, a heart check for every one of us. Do you have gods of self-righteousness, gods of wealth and love of the world? Here, regarding wealth and self-righteousness, the moment we stop viewing God as the one who provides your paycheck, your daily bread, and you view yourself, your boss, your company as the one who provides your paycheck, then your eye is already looking to another God. Because then the rules that we follow, where we compromise, will be, hey, this is what the company says I must do. This is what my boss says I must do to keep my job. It's not, hey, what has God commanded you to do? Ask yourself, what do you desire most? Is it what you obtain from the world? Or is it what you obtain from God alone? Here, the question is twofold. One is, what is it you desire? And if it's what you desire most is, is what you can obtain from the world, then we're already in the wrong place. It's the things that are eternal. It's the things that money cannot buy. Those are the things that we should be desiring. The things that we store up in heaven. Here, continuing regarding our devotion. In verse 4, God acts on behalf of the one who waits for him. It's a reminder to us. Are you still waiting on the Lord? Do you see yourself as the effector? Do you see yourself as the power behind it all? It's very simple. You go to an interview. And people ask you what you've done. And this is part of the... You, uh, people stretch the truth a bit. Hey, I spearheaded this. Hey, I single-handedly did that. <clears throat> and the expectation is, oh, so then you're going to come here and do all those things. In the business world, there's a concept called a rainmaker. Whether at a law firm or for a partner, uh, it's the one who brings in new business. This is, as I, as I talk to some of my lawyer friends, you have some of these young men who complain about how they, they slave over all this work. But uh, hey, what they can't do is they have to generate business. They have to have the business connections, people who are willing to pay money if they're going to become a partner. So unless they can, they can bring in revenue, then hey, they can't become a partner. Then you can keep on, keep on doing someone else's work. But the concept of a rainmaker, someone who can produce rain. Here, we're reminded that none of us produces rain. God alone sends rain. The simple rule that we must follow. Simple for a child, simple for an adult. Do what God commands and trust him with the results. Very simple, isn't it? We do what God commands. We trust him with the results. Someday it may cost you your life. Someday it may cost you your job. Perhaps it's also cost you friendships. Do what God commands. Trust him with the results. Life will be very simple, very easy in that regard. There's a reminder to us. Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So also those who labor to build his church. 
unless we're trusting the Lord, unless we're waiting on God, then we are laboring in vain. It's a reminder to us we cannot accomplish anything. It is God who builds his church. In verse 5, regarding devotion, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness. This description is manyfold. First, it describes not a one-time action, but it describes the consistency. It describes the pattern of one who steadfastly follows and serves Jesus Christ. It's not a one-time action. It's a continual action that we would do what is righteous. This is not a transactional view, meaning I do this and then you do that. God, I do this and you do that. If you ever deal with anyone who is transactional, it means they're not relational. You see the difference? They don't see people as people. They don't see people in a context of a relationship. Hey, what about a relationship? For a person who's purely transactional, they don't care. There's no loyalties. There's no love. It's I do this, you do that. In the, in the world of politics, it's understanding transactional. With God, it's not transactional. It's relational. Here, we think also about the statement, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness. It's a reminder to us about everything that we do. It must be done, this obedience. It must be done joyfully to our God. Because unless we're doing it joyfully, then we're not actually obeying. If you do it grudgingly, if you do it half-heartedly, then it's not obedience. Think about the requirements that we have for our own children. Let me tell them, obedience is immediate. It is without complaint. And it is done with a joyful heart. How often do we take that own advice for ourselves? Is our obedience, should it be any less to our God, that it should be immediate, that it should be without complaint, and that it should be done with a joyful heart? Does joy describe your life and your ministry to your family, to the church, to others outside the church? Joy should mark everything that we do. Because we trust that our God is a God who gives great joy. That being filled with the Holy Spirit, you and I have that joy. Because we know that we will see the returns that he desires for us. Continuing in verse 5 about devotion. Those who remember you in your ways. Those who remember you in your ways. How easy it is. To forget the Lord your God. Wasn't that the warning that God gave Israel? Deuteronomy 8. He warns them that when you've eaten and are full, when, when you have a full belly, you got to be careful. When you've built good houses and you live in them, when your herds and your flocks multiply, I don't know how many of you have, have 
sheep, goats, and cows, but okay, you can understand. When your herds and flocks multiply, when your silver and gold have, I don't even know how many people have silver and gold these days, when your silver and gold multiply, all that you have multiplies. And God warns, ah, oh, be careful. Then your heart will be lifted up, and you will forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Here, that warning, forgetting God, oftentimes comes in exceedingly great success. It begins with your heart being lifted up, meaning you and I begin to think too highly about ourselves. Here, perhaps you're thinking, now, Frank, you're just picking on those people that God has gifted, God has blessed with great outward success. No, forgetting God is not only for those who have great outward success. It applies also to those who have seen lean times, who have not experienced the great outward successes of life. For those who have seen lean times, who have not seen the quote-unquote generous hand of God, whether in ministry or in in everyday life or in business, that remembering God, it guards us from self-pity and from despair. That there is hope in remembering God in our circumstances. That he calls us to be faithful, especially when the times are lean. He calls us not to cut corners, not to uh, sacrifice principles. Here, we continue in verse 5. Behold, you were angry, for we sinned. It's a reminder to us that we have to stop the blame shifting. At some point, it must come that the buck stops with you. There's no more blaming someone else for what you did wrong. There's no more, hey, this is how I was raised. This, this was the failure of my parents. At some point, you have to say, I'm responsible for myself my decisions, my actions, my outcomes. There's no more looking for a scapegoat or a fall guy to condemn. In the world of politics, the secret to success is who to blame for all of your failures. This is not true in the spiritual life. God does not allow that. He's not deceived by it. You must see yourself as responsible for your own sins. You cannot pin it on anybody else. Each person will be judged. Each and every person will be judged. And there are no excuses. There is no getting off of the seat. Think about the example of the tax collector. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The buck stopped with him. May it stop with you. And may it stop with me. That we acknowledge God is angry. And it's because I sinned, because you sinned. Continue in verse 5, for in our sins we have been a long time. Oftentimes we, we think back to the question. Imagine someone that we've known in the church for a while, and there was some kind of a departure, some kind of an apostasy, some kind of a falling off of the path. And the question that's asked is, when did this person kind of go off the path? We realize it's actually a lot earlier than what we would think. 
James 1 speaks about that. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. What we see is when sin is accomplished, when it brings forth death. Listening to someone who describes death. That they have a love of death. That they take pleasure in death. They take pleasure in the things of this world. They cherish not the things of God. Well, this is them well along, well off the path. Well, we've been in our sins a long time. When did sin actually start? The answer is it started a long time ago. When the right desire of the heart was gone. Sin was already present. Going through the motions. Ask the simple question. How many would be here? How many of you would be here if someone else did not require you to be here? If you answer the question of, I wouldn't be here unless someone else forced me to be here, then this is you right now. This is you going through the motions. Joy and satisfaction in the worship of God already gone. We think in verse 9, verses 8 and 9, God renews your relationship with him. But now, O Lord, but now, O Lord, the Lord is the title of the covenant head. The Lord initiated the covenant. He sets the term of the covenant. You think about God's relationship with, with Abram. His name was Abram. It was only later that he changed it to Abraham. God renamed him. But it was God who found Abram. That he called him out of his family. Hey, you're going to leave your family. You're going to leave your father's house. You're going to leave your people. You're going to go to some foreign land. Of course, this was a man who required great faith. He obeyed God. He left everything he knew. But we reminded that Lord is the one who, who initiates the covenant. <coughs> he sets the term of the covenant. And that God's love as your Lord is secured by his covenant. It's not by our works that we earn his favor. You need a mediator. You need a mediator to stand between you and God. We are sinful. He is holy. And we need a mediator. Here, you think about what mediator that would be. In verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That the mountains might quake at your presence. Here, we ought to understand God provides a mediator. That God rent the heavens. That he sent his son. Verse 3, when you did awesome things that we did not expect. Imagine, there you are, sitting in the judgment seat. Hey, you're in prison because you lifted arms to rebel against your king. What would you expect? We're caught. His troops surrounded us. And there we are, surrounded by his troops, outnumbered 10 to 1. We, we lay down our arms. We're put in prison. And then you wonder, what's going to happen to you? <clears throat> You're standing before your king, of whom you've taken up arms to rebel against. <clears throat> How do you talk your way out of this one? <clears throat> we see verse 3. When you did awesome things we did not look for, or we did not expect. Think about 
the terms of the gospel that God has given us. Do you think anyone, any sinner, comes up with this idea on their own? This isn't man's idea of, you know what, God, I've sinned, but I got this great idea. Why don't you send your son in human flesh, have him live the perfect life, and then die in my place? How about that? What sinner comes up with that brilliant idea? Not one of us. I'll tell you what we come up with. We sound just like the younger son in the parable of the prodigal. We come to the realization, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And an acknowledgement, make me like one of your hired servants. Isn't that the best we can come up with, God? We've sinned against you. We're in the prison. We deserve death. Make me like one of your hired servants, meaning we don't receive a wage. We don't have a future. We don't have a hope. Don't kill us. Let us live. Give us our food. And maybe someday we'll grow old and die in your kingdom. Here, it was actually God's own idea to send his son. No one comes up with this on their own. It is God who rent the heavens and sent his son to die on behalf of sinners. You realize no sinner comes up with such a great idea. It is God alone who provides it. You want to see the fulfillment of this? Rend the heavens. It is God who rent the temple veil. Temple veil torn in two, symbolizing the separation between God and man, between heaven and earth. The earthquake at Christ's crucifixion. These are all proofs of the answer that God has given us in sending his son that he rent the heavens and came down in the person of Jesus Christ, the one who would be the sin-bearer, the one who would mediate between God and sinful man. There's an acknowledgement for us. If revival is to come, you and I must fall in love with Jesus Christ once again. We must come to realize, oh, I've sinned against God. And he is a great savior. He sent his son to die for someone who is unworthy to be saved. And that sinner is me. If there is to be a revival, we must come to a new and a greater appreciation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here, we see also, you are our father. You're in the position of authority. We are the clay. You are our potter. We are the work. We are all the work of your hand. Here, we think about the, the, the parts of Scripture. It was in Romans 9, talking about the, the, the clay and the potter. It's a humble acknowledgement that God could have made you vessels of dishonor, but he didn't. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ, then it's a reminder to you that you are made into vessels of honor. He, he, could have, he could have taken these and said, hey, they're all lost. They're all dishonor now. But he chose some of them out, that they would be vessels of honor, vessels of mercy. That it was out of his great love with which he loved us. Be not terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. He doesn't. 
He's far better than man. He casts our sins behind his back, never to be remembered when you and I repent and trust in Jesus Christ. That this is a reminder that we ought to turn from our sins and trust in Jesus Christ. So that's the third point in revival. God turns his people in repentance. Verses 6 and 7. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. We have all become like one who is unclean. In Leviticus, the requirement for a leper, and acknowledge that leprosy was more than just Hansen's disease. There are all kinds of diseases that were included within leprosy. But when a leper was in public, he was supposed to shout, Unclean! Unclean! You realize that the image was that of sin. Leprosy is dangerous. Sin is far more dangerous. It causes separation. It causes discord. It causes division. Ultimately, it brings death. You think about the people. What did, what did the pandemic show us? What, what, did, what did that period show us? It shows that people are separated. They're isolated. You think about how, how many of these uh, uh, mental health uh, organizations that, got, that got made, that, that, that were were started and, and how much money they made. It only tells us of the problem. It's not really a mental problem. It's actually a spiritual problem. It only masks itself. It shows up. It manifests itself of the symptoms of a mental problem. It's actually spiritual problems at the root. All righteous, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Your good works can never pay for your sins. They can't. Even your best works are like a filthy garment. You cannot earn God's favor, meaning you cannot add to the perfect work of Jesus Christ. You cannot add to his perfect work. The only thing you can do is embrace his work as your own. By faith, embrace it. And if our best works are tainted with sin, then what is left of our bad works our sinful, deliberate, rebellious actions. How can they be covered? They can only be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, who washes away your sin. There is no one who calls upon your name. Here, calling upon God's name, this describes prayer. Now, this is what we do when we pray. We, we call upon God's name, and it just says we do it in prayer, and prayer is part of worship, that calling upon God's name is symbolic of, of prayer and worship. Did you know that there was a time when it was not only Reformed Presbyterian churches who had evening worship services? In fact, a generation or two ago, many evangelicals churches had evening worship services too. But uh, they went by the wayside. In fact, when I was at Synod, I was talking to an elder he informed me about a list there where they are in South Carolina of how many of the churches in their former denomination actually have evening services. And the sad thing is that uh, most stopped having it. It was like in their presbytery, only 10% of the churches actually have an evening service. 
And here, the, the typical statistic is that if a church has an evening service, uh, about half or less than half will attend. If any have a prayer meeting, midweek prayer meeting, uh, it's like 10 or 20% will attend. And you ask, well, when is there revival? When God's people call upon his name. When we see the importance of going to him in prayer. Gathering with God's people. We see the importance. We make sacrifices. We make those changes, the necessary changes in our life. God says, who rouses himself to take hold of you. Repentance is at its core a turning away from sin and a taking hold of Jesus Christ. That we would rouse ourselves to take hold of God. That we would say, whatever it is that we're holding on to in this life, we must say, it pales in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, if you haven't done so, repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. We think about how this word is of instruction to us. At the heart of revival is the church focused not on the wrongdoings of the world, but rather us realizing our own spiritual lethargy and stupor, and realizing that we must be awakened from it. And we must be awakened from it now, today. At the heart of revival is a return to God. There's evidence that a revival is already present when God's people turn to him in prayer. And this is the most basic expression and evidence of faith, that when we all unite in prayer together. At the heart of revival is a return to God. It's a return to him in devotion to Christ. When we realize that we're not waiting on him, we're trusting in ourselves. Returning to God, waiting upon him, joyfully serving him. At the heart of revival is a renewed love for God and a greater appreciation for the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is good news for sinners. The heart of revival is a restored relationship with God, founded upon the promises through Jesus Christ. All of God's promises were yea and amen in his son Jesus. All the righteous requirements of the law have been fulfilled by Jesus Christ for you, and that you are called to receive it by faith. At the heart of revival is God's people turning to him in repentance. That we realize his anger is because of our sins, not somebody else's. Your sins, my sins. At the heart of revival is God's people waiting on him to act. For apart from him, you and I can do nothing. At the heart of revival is God's people leaving behind the gimmicks, the smoke, and the mirrors. It's returning to God's unadulterated word, to sacraments, to fellowship, and to prayer. It's learning to trust in God and to do the simple things that he has commanded us, that we would obey him, that we would trust him with our life and with the results. May we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for your ways are perfect. And Father, we acknowledge that you are angry because we have sinned not somebody else. Father, we pray that you would unite us in faith, that you would unite us in prayer, that we would be those who confess our own sins, not the sins of others. Father, we thank you that you are patient with us. 
Father, we pray that you might send a great revival in our midst, that it might begin in our hearts, that it might begin in Christ's church. Father, we pray that we would seek you, that we would desire to be committed to you. And Father, may we live out what you have called us to be and to live, and that we might trust you with the results. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.